Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. Well, I am really excited about today's episode because this is the first time I've interviewed two people on my podcast, and those two people are absolutely amazing nurses, and I can't wait to introduce them to you. And we are talking about a really interesting rapid response that turned out to be an abdominal aortic aneurysm. So Ashley, Corey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let me introduce you guys to my listeners. Both Ashley and Corey work in the ICU and PRN with me on the rapid response team. They are both well-loved by our hospital, and I am so proud to work alongside them. So Ashley, how about you go first? Um, Just tell everybody why you became a nurse in the first place and what you love about the rapid response role specifically. Well, medicine runs in my family. I come from a family of nurses and firefighters. And so the final choice to become a nurse came from my dad, who is like super awesome trauma nurse down south. Um, All his stories and uh, all the educating and mentoring he does really set me down the this path and love of nursing. And then how about rapid response nursing? Oh, uh, well, rapid response was not on my radar until Marissa approached me about it. And I have grown to love all the teaching and educating I do in rapid response. So. And you're pretty awesome at it as well. (laughs) (laughs) All right. How about you, Corey? Uh, When I met you, you were a medic. And I knew you'd be a great nurse. But what made you want to make the switch and face nursing school and the NCLEX and become a nurse? And then, obviously, what do you love about rapid response nursing? Uh, So as a medic, I felt like I had... um an isolated view of medicine is very, uh, you know, emergent and there was A plus B is C, but I wanted to expand my career and, you know, broaden my horizons and nursing was a good fit as my exposure was in the emergency department and pre-hospital medicine. Um, I also had some teaching ventures with you and that kind of expanded my horizons and you know many people had discussed with me the uh, possibility for critical care and other types of avenues and so uh, I decided to start going to school while I was working as a medic. Awesome. We are glad to have you in the profession for sure. Yeah thank you. In terms of uh, rapid response I was recruited by you um, and actually Ashley as well. (laughs) She came up to me one day and was like hey you should do rapid response and I was like as a matter of fact, I just got hired on. <laughs> um, but I, I really like working uh, as a nurse in general because I have the ability to help people in need. I think that's why a lot of people go into this. But specifically on rapid response, I really love watching the team of multiple disciplines come together, forming quickly with a unified effort for the purpose of preserving human life. Yeah. And there's a lot of critical thinking and quick implementation of life-saving techniques. Awesome. Yeah, both of you guys bring a lot to our team for sure. I really love saving lives with you guys, but let's talk about a patient where you saved the patient complete without me. So Ashley, you were working rapid response that day, and Corey, you were in the ICU as a bedside nurse. But Ashley, tell us about the rapid response call you got page two, and how did they initially present? Like, what did you do? So the rapid response was called first thing in the morning, 
and it was called for hypotension and increased work of breathing. So when I entered the room, the patient was sitting in bed, pale, diaphoretic, tachypneic, using accessory muscles to breathe. He was already on the defibrillator and his heart rate was in the 150s. Uh, we were unable to get a pulse ox and his initial blood pressure was 85 over 61. According to the primary nurse, the patient was admitted a few days prior for left foot ulcer, already receiving antibiotics and being followed by podiatry. The patient is normally independent and able to ambulate within the room without difficulty. An hour earlier, the patient began to complain of shortness of breath, but his vital signs were stable, so the nurse wasn't concerned. The patient ambulated to the restroom per usual, but could not return to bed because of his increased work of breathing and abdominal pain. He needed three nurses to get back to bed. The patient at baseline is normally alert and rather irritable. He is morbidly obese and non-compliant with his meds at home um, and was not known to be the kindest to the nursing staff. So he was pretty irritable with me the entire time. He kept insisting that he wanted to lay on his side because of his back pain that radiated to his abdomen. He was refusing to let us take vitals. I placed him on a non-rebreather uh, as precautionary because we couldn't get a pulse ox. I had respiratory in the room with me, so I went ahead and asked them to draw an ABG just to see uh, an accurate PO2. So the only, the only remarkable value was a lactic acid of 14.6, which is quite high considering his lactic acid from yesterday was normal. Um, so I decided to look into his morning labs and his 4 a.m. CBC showed a white blood cell count of 27, which was up from 12 the day before. And so my initial thought was he was in septic shock. Um, yeah. And I needed to get him to the ICU as soon as possible. The resident that was with me initially agreed that this was uh, presenting a septic shock and felt that PCU or our progressive care unit was a more appropriate uh, place for him because we could fluid resuscitate him and get him over this hump. But I said, no, we needed to go to the ICU. He needed more than just fluids. He needed better access. He possibly needed pressors. Um, so I made the push for ICU and, uh, God <laughs> I'm definitely thrilled that I did. So let me just summarize really quick. You go to a patient with a known infection whose white count is up, their lactic acid is up, they're breathing rapidly, they have hypotension and tachycardia, like all the classic surge criteria, septic shock, like it's screaming sepsis to me, right? Uh, yep, absolutely. So at what point were you like, hmm, maybe it's more than sepsis? Well, he complained of that abdominal pain and I didn't think much of it because, like I said, he was an irritable kind of guy. Um, so I felt it was more like he was just being difficult. Um, but what finalized the red flag of a AAA was as we, I packed up the patient and as we were rolling out of the room, the primary nurse said, oh, by the way, he has a history of AAA that he never followed up on. And that's when I looked at the resident and I said, we are going to the ICU now. <laughs> And that's what we did. <laughs> that's about right. 
All right, so Corey, at what point did you get involved with this patient? Like, what, what role did you play in the initial resuscitation? Sure. So I was working in the ICU that day, and the room that this patient went into was next to my assigned rooms. However, I was lucky enough to have uh, discharged or downgraded one of my patients, and I only had one that day. So I was available to assist, and the nurse that was supposed to get this patient uh, had um, a heavy load that day. So I basically got the patient into the room and started the initial assessment and initial resuscitation. And then um, she was able to come back in the room shortly thereafter and kind of we teammated it up and started working with this patient. Um, when I saw Ashley coming into the ICU, I could tell just based on uh, appearance that Ashley seemed very serious about this patient. It looked like there was uh, a lot going on. And then looking at the patient, he was, uh, as I recall, pale, cool, diaphoretic, um, in and out of consciousness and having abdominal pain. And the in and out of consciousness thing, I think, started once we got him onto the bed, as I recall. So he was screaming, holding his stomach, and then going in and out of consciousness. So that was a big red flag for everybody. And I remember um, there were echoes of AAA and there were echoes of septic shock. Um, so that's, that's whenever I kind of stepped in and tried to help out. And we had made the decision at that point uh, shortly thereafter to do the uh, mass transfusion protocol because we got a hemoglobin back. How low was the one you guys got? I want to say it was somewhere around three. <laughs> His morning one was 10. Yeah. Okay. So he's bleeding into somewhere. He's, <clears throat> yes. Okay. We weren't quite sure where at that point in time, but I do recall that a rapid drop in hemoglobin was called, and the fact that the patient was having abdominal pain with a history of AAA, we kind of started moving towards that route. Plus, despite heavy fluid resuscitation at that point, we weren't seeing much progress in terms of blood pressure. As a matter of fact, it was challenging to get repeat blood pressures. Wow. And then actually, you had said something earlier about how you couldn't get a blood pressure on the right arm, but you could on the left. Correct. I was able to get a blood pressure on the left and not on the right, but like again, I thought nothing of it since since he was rolling. He the was bed rolling all like, over the bed and had no interest in in you know getting care. So yeah, okay. But signs are starting to point now towards AAA. Before we decided to go to CT, uh, we had to make some pretty drastic interventions at that point. Um, so the uh, intensivist came into the room. We were in open discussion, as we typically do in the ICU, about how we're going to manage this. So we were already doing fluid resuscitation. We had already gotten the mass transfusion protocol in place, and we were using the level one rapid infuser, which is a device that basically creates a lot of pressure behind the bag and forces it into the body as quickly as possible. So while using those mechanisms, we still weren't able to get a very adequate blood pressure. So we needed to start some sort of vasopressor. So we started norepinephrine at that time. And norepinephrine um, is a great medicine, especially in distributive shock and other types of shock, because it doesn't really affect the heart rate or squeeze very much, as much as it affects the blood vessels and clamping. And in this situation, kind of seemed appropriate to get that blood pressure up, but not race the heart even more. So a typical dose for norepinephrine on a drip is measured by micrograms per kilo per minute, and it starts out as low as 0.02. And then you increase the increment of 0.02 about every five minutes until you get an adequate blood pressure. 
So in this case, we were already maxed out at 1.0. And uh, speaking with the intensivist, um, we all felt that it was in the best interest of the patient to escalate that dose as much as possible uh, in order to get the patient's blood pressure up to perfuse the organs in the brain so that we could manage them, get them to CT and potentially move on to the next steps. So we wound up getting um, permission for a dose as high as 3.0. That's a super <clears throat> high dose. I've never uh, practiced under that realm of dosing. It's Ever. extremely high. <laughs> Ever. Um, so think about that. That's that's uh, a lot. Three times the max. Yeah, amount. that's a that's three times the max amount. So according to uh, the resource that we commonly use in medicine called Up to Date, well, we found out that the max dose is actually um, 3.3 micrograms per kilogram per minute to uh, critical refractory shock. So once we got up to around the 2.0 to 2.5 mark, we started noticing an adequate blood pressure, and uh, we wound up actually sitting at 3.0 which was enough to maintain a solid blood pressure and uh, it afforded us the ability to get to CT and to uh, continue the resuscitation efforts without the patient you know, going into cardiac arrest. So why don't we just jack it up to like five or 10? Like why don't we just keep going up till we get like the perfect blood pressure on these patients? So there's a couple reasons for that. One, um, after a dose of 3.3, apparently there's a pretty linear effect, meaning that the effective dose um, you know, up to 3.3 basically no longer becomes effective. Uh, having a, a linear dosing just means the higher you go up, the, the less Nothing it's gonna happens. do, right? It's gonna make no difference. Uh, also, if it does in fact make some difference on the cellular level, um, you could potentially damage and harm tissues uh, at the extremities like fingers and toes. Now that's obviously, a, the longer you're exposed to that high dosing, the higher that risk is. But um, in these critical refractory shock situations, it's important to think about the organ perfusion and the brain perfusion um, first. And in a short term, which this luckily overall turned out to be a pretty short term usage of that high dose, um, it, it affords usually the patient very little harm. Awesome. So we decided risk versus benefits it's more valuable to perfuse his brain and his kidneys and his heart and lungs Absolutely. Um, with his high-dose pressors for the moment, knowing that we're going to be able to turn it off once we can repair his aorta. Right. Fix the, fix the bleed, and then all this dosing goes down. And then you talked about using the rapid infuser and giving mm -hmm. mass transfusion protocol. About how much blood did you give to the patient, and how did you know what blood to give? Sure. So whenever you initiate a mass transfusion protocol, the blood bank uh, typically sets up a four to four to one ratio of packed red blood cells, fresh flows in plasma and platelets. So basically it's a one to one to one ratio and um, it's universal donor blood. So you initiate that, they send you a cooler and you're able to give it to the patient without the potential ill effects of it not being cross-matched. And so we're not just dumping in pack red cells, we're making sure to give platelets right. and plasma as well. So all the blood he's losing, we're basically mm -hmm. replacing it with replacing the exact ratios. Yeah. Um, good, good. So tell me about y'all's trip to CAT scan. How'd that go? It was uh, definitely a memorable CAT scan trip. Um, unfortunately, when I dropped the patient off in the ICU, I had to run to another rapid and then got that patient stable and came back. And when I came back, both Corey and the, the primary nurse grabbed me and said, we need to go to CAT scan. Now, we need to go to CAT scan. Yeah. And that's when I found out that he was on an extra high dose of Levo. Um, the patient was now intubated. 
Um, and it, I said, okay, let's go. Um, it took three critical care nurses and a resident to take this patient down to CAT scan, who was probably too unstable to go to CAT scan, but we did it anyways. And um, in CAT scan, you could basically see everybody's eyes go big and everybody knew that he needed to go to OR now. I do recall that. And uh, it was very obvious at that point that we were dealing with a massive retroperitoneal bleed. Wow. And then what like physical symptoms did he start displaying that told you, oh yeah, this is definitely a, a AAA? So when I dropped off the patient, he had been complaining of abdominal pain, but there was no other symptom that he was showing. When I came back that we were going to CAT scan, he looked like he was nine months pregnant. And he started developing bruising on his on the left side of his abdomen. So that basically confirmed for us that we definitely needed the CT. He definitely had a ruptured AAA, and we definitely needed to move much faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For sure. And actually, to speak on the point of the retroperitoneal bleed, one of the things that's interesting is an assessment sign that we don't get to see very often, which is Cullen sign or Gray-Turner sign. Cullen sign is typically um, some sort of bruising around the umbilicus area that represents a retroperitoneal bleed, which can be from any organs, really, in the abdominal area. Um, usually it's the pancreas, but in this case, if you have a huge bleed, um, it can go off to the side that it's bleeding dominantly, and in this case, it was the left abdominal wall in the lower section. Now, Gray-Turner's is a more of a late sign, but this guy was bleeding so much, he had both. He had a, a large distended left abdomen, and he also had both of those bruising signs that Ashley talked about. So then the team from surgery came up, and we had also reinitiated the mass transfusion protocol more than once in order to keep getting that blood in there until we could get him to surgery. And I, we handed off some of that blood to the surgical team, and we actually went down and took the patient to the OR, which was pretty much about... 10 to 15 minutes after we came back from CT. Okay, so this page, just to summarize, the patient came in looking very septic-y, and then, oh shoot, this is a AAA, we're gonna dump a bunch of blood into him, and how much blood would you say you gave before the OR? I'm gonna say about 20 to 25 blood products. Goodness. Uh, super high pressors, and then in Cascan we confirm, yes, it is a AAA, then he goes off to surgery, they repair the bleeding spot, and then he comes back to the ICU in your shift? Yes. Okay, and then what did you guys do? So when he first came back, um, first and foremost, uh, he was incredibly stable. <laughs> and <laughs> Super important. Yeah. He was very stable in appearance. Um, his skin tone looked better as he was perfusing more. Um, he had a stable blood pressure. His heart rate was down. And miraculously, he was on what I refer to as a baby dose of norepinephrine. Um, so I think he was somewhere in the realm of like 0 0.1, 0 0.1 or 0 0.2, wow. uh, which is like, you know, one thirtieth of what he was on. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And then you guys were checking his abdominal pressures post-surgery? Yeah. So uh, abdominal pressure uh, post-surgery is a really important thing to check. And the way we do that is we'll have a, a urinary catheter in place. Uh, and the, the most proximal point, um, there's a little port there that 
um, you can uh, hook up to. And what you do is you transduce like an arterial line transducer to that and it gives you a pressure and a waveform on the monitor. Uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty simple and it's very similar to all the other types of transducing. Uh, that pressure you want to keep below 30. And um, basically when we were monitoring it, what we were looking for is if a patient has an abdominal pressure that's too high, we get concerned for compartment syndrome, which is uh, an excessive amount of pressure on the organs and the blood vessels that are going to those organs. And so when you don't have enough blood flow, you can start to damage those organs and those organs can die. So that would mean that we would need to re-intervene if the abdominal pressure was too high and stayed too high. Gotcha. And so if the abdominal pressure is high, what intervention options do we have to get it down? Um, to my knowledge, uh, you can go back to surgery potentially. Mm -hmm. um, you may need to do an open X-lap to reduce that pressure. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure about pharmaceutical the The pharmaceutical route that um, I heard mentioned was to paralyze the patient. Mm. Um, place the patient on a paralytic. He's obviously still intubated. Um, and then using the paralytic would uh, relax the abdominal muscles and every other muscle in the body. Um, but that would add... Uh, give the abdomen more uh, uh, stretch. stretch, if you will. Yes, more stretch, Absolutely. if you will. So they were talking about if his abdominal pressures did get over 30 and sustained, they were going to try a paralytic before sending him down to surgery. Fortunately, he didn't need either of them. That's no, awesome. as I recall, his pressures were in the low 20s. Now, Ashley, didn't you go back and visit him like a couple days later? I did. I did go back and visit him. Um, he was extubated. This is probably three days later. So he is now extubated and he was on a couple liters nasal cannula. And I walked in so excited to see him. And I said, hey, look at you. Look how good you're doing. You had me so worried the other day. And, um, well, he said a, a statement that I probably cannot repeat fully, um, but he said, I feel like not sunshine. Um, you can replace that word with another S word. So he was back um, to his baseline. He was like. back to his baseline and his wife was in the room and I looked over to her and she just rolled his eyes at him and said, he's fine. I said, okay. Perfect. Strong work. Strong work, buddy. So proud of you. Perfect. Well, what a great story and amazing recovery considering all this guy went through. He probably did have a little septic shot going on with his foot and his white count going up and his lot to being so high. And he dissected and ruptured his abdominal aorta, which is like the biggest vessel in the body. Had a huge abdominal surge. Like this guy went through so much and he actually made a full recovery. That is awesome. So as far as you guys go, are there any takeaways that you would want to share with, say, a new nurse or if you were precepting a nurse, what would you want them to take away from this particular case study? I think I would want them to take all the patient's complaints seriously. Um, the abdominal pain at the time when I first saw him, it was still an early symptom. And so out of my concern of septic shock, I was worried about his heart. I was worried about his lungs. I was even worried about his kidneys with, with the fact that we weren't getting a blood pressure. Um, but definitely, if your patient has sudden onset anything at this point, I think it's worth delving into and asking questions and, um, and getting the doctors involved, getting the team involved to further assess it. 
Yeah, uh, I definitely second that. I think that it's important not to assume that every patient only has one problem as well. Another thing that we run into in the hospital is we deal with some pretty complex situations sometimes where someone comes in for one thing and then another thing happens while they're in the hospital. So in this case, the patient had an infection, they were kind of going down the septic route and they were being treated for such. And then it looked like they had, you know, a septicemia kind of rapidly occur again and they were becoming unstable. However, a secondary diagnosis was, you know, peeking its head. So I think it's important to not get tunnel vision, but also to expand your view and say, hey, I know this is going on, but what else could be going on? Yeah, and and go with your intuition and escalating that and advocating for your patient. That's awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for being on my podcast. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. You guys... I mean, it's even more fun to see lives with you in, like in real life. You both are a pleasure to work with, such amazing nurses, such strong patient advocates, as I'm sure my listeners can tell just from this discussion. Um, thanks for being a part, and thanks for being awesome nurses. Yeah, thanks thank for you. having us. Well, Ashley and Corey did a pretty darn good job explaining patient presentation and treatment of abdominal aortic aneurysms. But let's break it down just a little further and then summarize our clinical pearls with regards to recognizing and managing this patient population. So your aorta is the biggest blood vessel. It originates coming out of the left ventricle and arches over the top of the heart and down the center of the body with branches coming off to perfuse the brain, the limbs, the kidneys, and other abdominal organs. This giant vessel usually is around two to three centimeters in diameter. An aneurysm is when the vessel wall has thinned out in one area and starts to stretch out like a balloon. Small aneurysms that just need to be watched, but not operated on, would be like three to four centimeters in diameter. Large aneurysms, say greater than six centimeters, are of huge concern, and the rate at which they are growing often correlates with the risk of rupture. Think about a balloon that is not very filled with air, like an underinflated balloon. Good luck trying to pop it. The walls are thick and still have room to stretch and accommodate changes within and around them. But an overfilled balloon with thin walls will pop if it lands on grass. The same goes for the aorta. The vessel wall can get thinned out over time from hypertension and vascular disease. The bigger the vessel gets, the thinner the wall, and eventually it can rupture. You might have heard the terms aortic aneurysm, aortic dissection, or aortic rupture used interchangeably. And while they are similar and often occur simultaneously together, they describe different levels of the bad aorta spectrum. An aneurysm, like I had said, is just a stretched out and thin vessel wall. The dissection part is when there's a tear in the inner layer of the vessel wall, but the outer layer is still intact. So now blood can seep out into this little pouch that's created between the outer and inner layers of the vessel. Blood clots can form in there, and if they find their way out of that little dissection pouch, they'll get lodged distal to the aneurysm and cause symptoms of impaired blood flow to that area. Think ischemic limb. And obviously, a rupture is when the vessel just pops, and all the blood that was pumping through the biggest pipe in the body is now spilling into the chest and or abdomen. So classic symptoms of a growing abdominal aortic aneurysm are chest, abdominal, or groin pain, 
depending on the portion of the aorta that is stretched out and dilated. The pain experienced from a AAA is from the pressure to the surrounding structures, so pain often is described as radiating to the back or the flanks. And, like I had just mentioned, due to the increased velocity inside that little pouch by the dissection, little blood clots can find their way to the lower extremities and you may have a weak or absent pedal pulse on one side from a clot getting lodged further down in the vessel, blocking blood flow to the lower extremity. One time when I worked in the ER, I received a patient from EMS that was a frequent flyer for us. He was always in for back pain, like every other month, demanding narcotics. On this particular day, uh, he was yelling that his back hurt, that's kind of his usual, and I was helping him to a gown for yet another x-ray of his back. And in the process, I noticed that his right leg was cooler than his left. So I went to check for pulses, and I couldn't find a pedal pulse on the right side. So I called the doctor on the phone and said, hey, you might want to change that x-ray to a CAT scan of his abdomen chest. His right lower extremity is cold, and I can't even palpate a pedal pulse. And sure enough, this wasn't his same chronic back pain. This was a new and life-threatening aortic dissection, and he quickly decompensated and was taken to the OR for repair. There are other classic signs like a pulsating mass in the abdomen, that was probably on your NCLEX, but those are not always palpable. This patient that Ashley and Corey had was obese, so they might not have been able to even detect that due to his body habitus. But as it evolved, they could see his abdomen was growing and like visible bruising on the outside of his abdomen. These patients go fast. I have, I've literally had patients awake and talking to me and then they cough or vomit, which increases pressure inside the abdomen or chest, causing that stretched out balloon of an aneurysm to rupture and they go into cardiac arrest immediately. At that point, unfortunately, there's no hope of resuscitation unless you are already on the OR table with the surgeon standing there with scalpel in hand. In fact, most aortic dissections never even make it to the hospital because the transition from stable to dead is so fast and irreversible. So what is the nurse's role in managing a patient with an abdominal aortic dissection or aneurysm? Well, if the blood pressure is high, get it down. You will often see them order two antihypertensives at the same time, one focusing on vasodilation and the other on reducing the force of contraction, like beta blockers, to reduce the velocity coming out of the aorta. But if the blood pressure is low, well, you know why, they're bleeding. So give blood products to allow them to still oxygenate their vital organs and vasopressors so they have enough blood pressure for that blood to even reach the vital organs and get them to the operating room as fast as possible. In conclusion, hypotension plus tachycardia plus pale plus diaphoretic is bad. Like super scary, should make you tachycardic too, kind of bad. Throw in some abdominal pain and a history of aortic aneurysm and you have a ticking time bomb. I want to echo what Ashley and Corey already said. Don't get stuck on your patient's admitting diagnosis. If they had stayed on the sepsis rabbit trail for too much longer, this guy might have gotten some antibiotics, but never would have made it to the operating room in time. Yes, he was admitted for sepsis, and yes, it needed to be treated, but this was new and needed further investigating. Yes, the lab work might have been great, 
yesterday, but that doesn't mean it is today. If you feel like something has changed in your patient, speak up. What you know about their baseline is so valuable to the rest of the interdisciplinary team. He was walking yesterday, but now he cannot. He was carrying on full conversations, and now he's too sleepy to talk. He didn't have abdominal pain yesterday, and now he does. I'm not suggesting that every patient with new onset abdominal pain has an abdominal aortic aneurysm, but I'm just reminding us to stay vigilant. Don't disregard symptoms. Always assume worst case scenario until proven otherwise by your assessment findings or diagnostic imaging or labs. When your patient's declining, you are their voice and you are their advocate. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponsern.com.